Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. And you must remember this. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elson. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Elson. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Even if you've never seen Casablanca, pieces of it must be embedded in everyone's pop culture DNA because certain images, lines of dialogue, and pieces of music seem at least vaguely familiar to everyone. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh In November of 1942, Warner Brothers invited audiences into Rick's Café. There we met its jaded American expatriate owner, Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, the beautiful and enigmatic Ilsa Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman, the heroic Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Hahn Reed, the loyal piano player, Sam, played by Dooley Wilson, and of course, the charmingly corrupt French captain, Louis Renault, played by Claude Rains. Try Mr. Laszlo's luggage and put it on the plane. Yes, sir. If you don't mind, you fill in the names. That'll make it even more official. You think of everything, don't you? And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him till the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night Last we said... Last night I... we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no, I... Now, I... you've got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. The iconic image of Bogart's cynical romantic in a trench coat and with a cigarette in hand inspired imitations ranging from Bugs Bunny to Woody Allen, who dedicated the play and film Play It Again, Sam, to Bogie. Bogart's influence also jumped the Atlantic to get a tribute from French heartthrob Jean-Paul Belmondo in Breathless. And watching Casablanca today, you may be surprised to see how topical its themes about refugees trying to find safety or a sense of home play out against the backdrop of Trump's policies. But for the moment, let's travel back to 1942 and to the first trailer for Casablanca. That trailer opened with gunshots as titles wiped across the screen that promised, if you're looking for adventure, you'll find it in Casablanca. Casablanca. City of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. What do you 
want for Sam. Don't buy and sell human beings. That's too bad. That's Casablanca's leading commodity. You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. That's all right. I tried to reason with you. I tried it. Now I want those letters. Free Bogart, the most dangerous man in the world's most dangerous city. Ingrid Bergman fighting the strange fascination that draws her closer and closer to him. Casablanca, where every burning moment brings a new danger, where every kiss may be the last. Okay, they don't write copy like that anymore. But some would argue that they don't make pictures like Casablanca anymore. This year marks the 75th anniversary of Casablanca, a film that would provide defining roles for its stars Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. So this podcast, I'll be paying tribute to the film. First, we'll hear from a trio of movie lovers at the TCM Film Festival, where Casablanca celebrated its 75th birthday with a screening to a very enthusiastic crowd. And then I interview Noah Eisenberg about his new book, We'll Always Have Casablanca, the life, legend, and afterlife of Hollywood's most beloved movie. I remember seeing the film as a little kid because my dad loved movies and passed that passion on to me. I bought the Richard J. Noble Film Classics Library book of Casablanca, where there were frame grabs of every scene along with the complete script. I remember poring over that book endlessly because that was before VHS, DVDs, or Blu-rays. You only got to see the film when it played in theaters or on TV, but not on demand whenever you had a craving for Bogey or Rick's Cafe. If I suddenly wanted to see Claude Rains as Captain Renault, the closest I could get would be to flip through that book and remember how deliciously he delivered his lines. Hello, Rick. Hello, Louis. How extravagant you are throwing away women like that. Someday they may be scarce. Over the decades, Casablanca has lost none of its appeal. So let's begin this podcast with some TCM folks paying tribute to Michael Curtiz's Casablanca. Hi, my name is Charlie Tavish, and I'm the head of programming at Turner Classic Movies. And tonight we played Casablanca for the second time at the TCM Classic Film Festival in honor of its 75th anniversary. It's obviously one of the greatest classic movies of all time, and for good reason. It's unbelievably romantic uh, and what I really love are the politics and I love the idealism behind it. It's, it's stirring and it, when I saw it first as a young boy I think it inspired me in a lot of ways to uh, think about the world and think about heroes and what, what heroes are and, and what makes someone a hero and um, that was what's so great about Humphrey Bogart's character and about Laszlo and the interplay between the three leads it was beautiful. It's one of my favorite movies. What do you think gives Casablanca its legacy, its long-lasting appeal across generations? I think it's it's what I sort of just said, the idealism behind it. I think that y- you you feel inspired when you watch it. The scene where, where um, they play the Marseillaise and the, the, the crowd stands up. get chills because uh, it feels like it's good versus evil and it feels like the good guys are, are fighting the good fight and 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 you you want to be on the good team and and that's how you feel when you watch the movie it's almost like uh, you, you, you it make it draws you in and in a, you have a rooting interest in addition the love story is really complex and it's and it, you don't know where it's going to go and I think that that's another thing too that makes it um, such a great film the, the combination of the, the politics and the idealism with, with the love story. 
one woman has hurt you and you take your revenge on the rest of the world. You're a, you're a coward and weakling. No, no, Richard, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but, but you, you are our last hope. If you don't help us, Victor Laszlo will die in Casablanca. What of it? I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good spot for it. All right, my name is Danny Reed from Precode.com. It's a website about Precode Hollywood, 1930 to 1934. Casablanca is probably one of the films I've seen most in the theater. I've always loved it. It's um, A lot of people see it as like a really serious cinema classic, so it takes us forever to get around to it, but it's actually really funny. It's a lot of fun, but you know it has a very strong romantic undertone. The longing between Bogey and Bergman is just fantastic. I tried to stay away. I thought I would never see you again. That you are out of my life. The day you left Paris. If you knew what I went through. If you knew how much I loved you. How much I still love you. Is that the thing that stands out the most for you about it? No, it's Claude Rains, but I was trying to give you... I know everybody's going to say Claude Rains. Claude Rains in that movie is, you know, perfect. I mean, there's not a day that goes by where, you know, not everybody on the internet's not quoting his... Shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. He's just, like, the perfect kind of comic relief because his character also has a really interesting arc where he goes from willing collaborator to freedom fighter by the end. Spoiler alert. But it's easy, yeah, Claude Rains is the best part of the movie. But so it's like one of those movies where it's... I don't think I could name a flaw in it. So I just interviewed Noah Eisenberg, who's written a, a book about Casablanca, and this is the 75th anniversary of it. One of the things he pointed out is that a lot of people may not think of it as a refugee film, but in current political climate, maybe people would be looking at it this year in a different light. And how does that strike you? I could see that. I mean, Conrad Veidt uh, was in Doctor What Cabinet of Caligari, and he's in the movie as the German villain. I know several of the other character actors are also refugees, and that's kind of what's so interesting about Hollywood in the 40s to me. It's just how like everybody started leaking in, especially from Germany. You know, when like Dietrich came, and then slowly like Billy Wilder and all the other stars and actors came over this way. Kind of, they kind of helped make Hollywood what was so fantastic about it in the 40s, like this just giant melting pot of you know idealism aimed at America. And what do you think has given Casablanca its lasting quality? Why is it one of those films that just continues to gain fans and audiences? I think it's a mix between Bogart's performance, which is so like moody, but you know he seems like I think he had like uh, contributes a lot to like an American character, like especially like during that time where you're kind of reluctant to get involved in things, you're very much concerned with your own thing. By the end of the movie, he kind of sees that he's a, he's a big part of, you know, even if he's a small cog, he has to do the right thing. And that's very much what I grew up with believing in. I think a lot of people grew up believing in that you're, you know, your, your duty as an American, you know, you can be small-minded, but you have to realize there's a bigger picture and work towards it. And the romance, the music, and the design, like it's a gorgeous movie. Like Michael Curtiz just directs the hell out of it. Hi, this is Kelly Pratt. I am better known as Irish Jayhawk 66 on Twitter, if you go there, or my outspoken and freckled blog, which is kellypratt.com. Uh, as far as Casablanca goes, I gotta say one of the most significant memories for me that kind of stands out in my brain amongst the many would be the scene where Paul Henry 
gets the orchestra roused up. Uh, you know, basically it's a battle of song against Nazis. Play La Marseillaise. Play it. It is definitely one of the most moving moments that I think comes to pretty much everyone's mind when they think of that film. And what do you think about Casablanca has made it so long-lasting? You know, I think it's a combination of just a really good story that seems timeless, and yet today I would say in many ways it feels even more timely. If you think of some of the political things that we're going through in this globally, um, but even when there aren't some of these issues going on politically, it, it's still a timeless story. You've got romance, you've got action, you've got intrigue, you've got a war going on, uh, you've got Nazis, you've got uh, kind of this love triangle issue going on, uh, and you've got incredible performances by incredible actors. And I think it's really a sense of authenticity because a lot of those actors that were starring in, the, in that film, including these small character roles, came as immigrants themselves, were some of them literally kicked out by Nazis and, and coming over to make that film. So it's it's pretty epic film. Well, and even on screen too, you have refugee stories because this is a, Casablanca was a place where a lot of these people were waiting to transit from one country to another. Exactly. Today, I, you know, the issue of refugees is definitely uh, very topical, very current, but I think that's also an issue that's never gone away. I mean, it has always been somewhere in the world that has been an issue, but the fact that a lot of those actors were themselves actual refugees really adds to the storyline. And again, the authenticity, it feels genuine and, and incredible, incredible performances by all of them. It's like we have the cream of the crop in literally every role. So whether they're playing the bartender or they're playing, you know, the small role or the bigger roles that are memorable to all of us. And do you have a favorite line? Oh golly, there are so many. I, Claude Rains' line when he says that he's shocked, shocked about gambling in that establishment. I mean, let's face it, he was given like a lot of the best lines because they were delivered so cheeky as they should have been. And um, so I, to be honest, I think he got the lion's share when it came to a lot of those very funny lines and so. All right, well, thank you. Thanks so much. I spoke with Kelly Pratt, Danny Reed, and Charles Tabish in April at the TCM Film Festival. I spoke with Noah Eisenberg a month earlier in La Jolla when he was having a book signing for We'll Always Have Casablanca. So Noah, we are here at Warwick's Bookstore because you have a new book coming out about Casablanca. So the first time I got to speak to you, you had just written a book about Edgar G. Ulmer, who is a filmmaker who was kind of on the fringes of Hollywood. And now you're doing a book about a film which has come to symbolize kind of Hollywood itself. So what what kind of a journey was that between these two books? The Omer book, you're absolutely right. In fact, the, the very subtitle of it, A Filmmaker at the Margins, uh, underscores that sort of peripheral fringe position that, that Omer occupied in Hollywood. 
And this move to do a book on Casablanca was not a conscious decision to do something that was much more of a touchstone, a Hollywood touchstone, or, or sort of the apogee of classical Hollywood cinema. But I did want to, after spending all those years in the archives and researching especially the emigre community in Hollywood of the 1930s and 40s, that's really what forms the central kind of, um, it's a central chapter, actually. It's called Such Much, and it's the central chapter of the book. And that's something that I felt that would was was in need of reappraisal, reevaluation, something that I felt had often been overlooked in the story of Casablanca. It was always the greatest love story, the greatest romance, the Bogie Bergman picture that, 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 that it remains for so many people. And I'm not disputing that. That's a big part of it. But in addition to that, the story of all of these different uh, emigres and exiles and immigrants who had made their way to Hollywood during the Hitler regime, they are so, so very important for this film. And so I wanted to, to give them their due. Uh, and that's a, a, a major focus, a major emphasis uh, of this book as well as the Elmer book. So that's a sort of, that's the hidden affinity. That's the bridge that gets you from one mm -hmm. to the other. So when you were tackling this book, what can people expect when they get it? What are you, is it exactly like a making of, or is it more kind of about the legacy of this film and how it's managed to last so long? It's a combination of both. I mean, the making of Algin Harmitz, who's a wonderful film historian and who'd done a book also on Wizard of Oz, in 1992, on the 50th anniversary of Casablanca, she published Round Up the Usual Suspects, which is a wonderful title. And that book, she really, she leaves very, very few stones unturned in terms of the production history of the film. I cover some of that as well in the first chapters of this book. But big uh, emphasis, big focus uh, of this one as well is the afterlife and how the film continues to resonate 75 years after its premiere in New York City on Thanksgiving Day at the Hollywood Theater in Midtown Manhattan. And so that's that's something that I that I wanted to account for why it is that we still think of it as such a a touchstone of classical Hollywood cinema, why it is that this is the film that is shown anytime there's a celebration of Hollywood, why it is that it's constantly on TCM, for instance, and and, and all of that, and why it is that the people riff on the lines and and quote the lines even if they have never even seen the movie. So that's that's you know part of it. It's it, you know the place that it occupies in our cultural lexicon, so to speak. And so I wanted to to to, to zero in on that as well with this book. Now the fact that we are talking about this film seventy five years after it came out would probably have been a bit of a surprise to some of the people making it before they started shooting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, um, quite famously, both. Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart were really uneasy about this film, and it was a difficult production for both of them for different reasons. I don't think either of them ever would have expected it to go on to become the movie that, that, that it was. And in fact, Bergman, you know, this, this uh, at least in the world of Hollywood cin cinema, this was, this was sort of her calling card, and she, to, to the end of her life, really, in a way, almost regretted how, how, how much this film was left over many arguably better films that she made in her, in her, in her long career. Bogart, too, was really unsure whether or not he could pull it off as a romantic lead. He'd played so many, you know, tough guys, gumshoes and, and so forth at, at Warner's before this, this film, and he just didn't know whether he could, could do that. He had other personal uh, matters that he was dealing with as well. His marriage was breaking up and so forth. And so this was, a, this was definitely a, a tough, tough film to make. The screenwriters, too, I mean, the Epstein twins, for instance, Julius and Philip Epstein, they thought of it as 
just uh, work for hire. I mean, they, 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 they were contract writers at Warner's, as was Howard Koch, and this was just one of many, many films that sort of passed through their hands, but they had no idea that it would go on to win, as it did in, in 1944, the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was a part of the slate of pictures from 1943, even though they rushed it into release and, and were able to do the premiere in New York City again on Thanksgiving Day 1942, but technically it's a, it's a 43 film. So in going through all this past details, all the history of it, and speaking to people about the film's legacy, what's your feeling about why it has managed to last so long? What kind of a chord is it striking with people that even contemporary audiences and young people and kids still kind of pick up on Bogart and some of the lines? Well, those are different registers, I'd say. Contemporary, the contemporary chord that it strikes today, no doubt, and this is something I published just uh, last uh, Friday in the Daily Beast, a piece on the, the refugee problem, the refugee crisis then and now. And I think that that is definitely a, uh, a register in which the film currently uh, resonates. The, the, the refugee story that's told on screen, much of it referenced, and, and, and then other uh, scenes in the film implicit, but really the core of 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 the uh, of the story of the of the first the unproduced stage play everybody comes to Rick's but then also the the screenplay here is really about that 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 story of, of languishing refugees in Europe and the the uh, terribly difficult predicament that they found themselves in around the time of the production of this film with the coming of the second world war many eyes in imprisoned Europe turned hopefully or desperately toward the freedom of the Americas. Lisbon became the great embarkation point, but not everybody could get to Lisbon directly, and so a tortuous roundabout refugee trail sprang up. For the kids, I mean, I think that it's it's it, it's those quotable lines. I think that that's, that's something that still remains. I mean, again, I, I showed this film at the New School where I run the, the, the film program, and I show it to the students in, in undergraduate at seminars. And most of them have never seen the film, but they know so many of the lines. I mean, in political discourse today, too, I mean, this just, I'm shocked, shocked to find that there's, a, in the film, it's gambling, but that line is used, you know, rarely is a, a week or two uh, pass by when we don't have some reference to the to the film, indirect usually, I mean, just, just as, a, as, a, as, a, as a line. And so, yeah, it's quotability and it's iconic status. I mean, I think just the images from the film, including the one that graces the dust jacket of this of this new book of mine, they're so iconic. We know them, and we know because of the bogey cult in the 1950s, especially he passed away in 57, and uh, the Brattle screenings in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard and Radcliffe students flocked to the movies during their uh, uh, exam period and, and watched the film and shouted out their lines almost as if, you know, anticipating the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But that sort of cult following and cult... Um, Attraction, I think, not merely to Bogart, but but uh, especially uh, to Bogart from the fifties onward. I think is also something that that college students, uh, any people even younger, but certainly college students at that point in time, and I think strangely enough, e- even today to a much lesser extent, but even today and. Uh, Every Valentine's Day, this movie is shown not only at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, but uh, the Dartmouth. I teach in the summers up at Dartmouth. The Dartmouth Film Society shows it with with real regularity on on, on Valentine's Day, and students ages eighteen to you know twenty two, they pack the auditorium and and watch this movie as a celebration of, of romance to some some extent, you know, bittersweet romance as it as it turns out, but I think also just a celebration of the film and of classical Hollywood and so it, it remains I think the the go to film 
not merely on Thanksgiving Day, which was the day that the book was released, as fate would have it, but also I, I, I think whenever people are, are, are really trying to evoke a certain moment that speaks to that era, that epoch of, of classical Hollywood, Casablanca is really, is really first on that list. And Umberto Eco made this wonderful observation in a piece that, 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 that he wrote in the uh, early 1980s, that the Casablanca is, is, is not one movie, it is movies. And I think that that's true. I think that it's, it's sort of, it is the stand-in for, and just because it, it, you know, it kind of luxuriates in so many archetypes and, and there's, there, there's so much that's, that's really, you know, not, not only uh, depicted on screen, but also percolating beneath the surface. And all. It's more than just a single movie in many respects. There's something strangely uh, composite about it, or strangely, uh, God, I don't even know how to to, to put this, but it, it, it you know, it, it, in a way, it depicts not only the story that they were attempting to tell on the sound stages in Burbank, California, in the summer of 1942, but it is also commenting on on earlier films. It's commenting, for instance, on Algiers, you know, with Hedy Lamarr from a good uh, uh, four years earlier. It's commenting on a lot of the uh, war pictures that, that Warner Brothers was making, including Confessions of an a uh, Anti-Nazi Spy from 1939. And it's anticipating, I think, also some of the, 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 the films that would come after it. And I think that that's what, you know, it's that rich richness, that texture that also defines the film and also I think accounts to a large extent for its enduring quality, its stay, staying power. And you also have things like Woody Allen's Play It yeah. Again, Sam, which probably brought Bogart to a new audience on a certain level because that was in what, the 70s? Uh, it, with the stage play was already at the end of the 60s, enormously mm -hmm. successful run on Broadway, more than a year if I'm not mistaken. And then by 72, you have the Harold Ross adaptation, screen mm -hmm. adaptation. They say that dames are simple. I never met one who didn't understand a slap in the mouth or a slug from a 45. You never thought you could make it with dames. Well, you can. Look, all you got to do is make your move and you're home free. Tell her that you've met a lot of dames, but she is really something special. Oh, that she won't believe. Oh, no. I have met a lot of dames, but you are really something special. Really? She bought it. And yeah, I mean, that, that film is a direct, I was mentioning moments before this, that a bogey cult. I mean, there is no other testament, I think, to that, to that kind of uh, almost pathological devotion, almost monastic devotion to, 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 to bogey than, than the role that, that, that uh, Woody Allen performs himself as Alan Felix you know, not only quoting from, from Bogart, but Bogart there is almost his, his alter ego. There initially on the stage uh, when it was doing its uh, Broadway run, and then in the film you have, um, oh, Lacey, I'm blanking on the, the first name of the, of, the, of the actor who plays Bogart in this, but who's always present and, and sort of giving him advice on how to, how to be that, you know, embody that masculinity, how to deliver those, you know, those clipped uh, sort of declarative sentences a la, you know, Chandler Hammett. James M. Cain and so forth, and, and just how to comport himself. And, and, you know, Woody Allen being the schlemiel that he is on screen and even off, he's trying as best as he can to master it. I mean, that very famous scene at the end where he is, is, is you know, delivers the, the lines verbatim from the final scene of Casablanca. And I understand, really. Are you sure? You're not just saying that to make things easy? No, I'm saying it because it's true. 
Inside of us, we both know you belong to Dick. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not on it with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. It's beautiful. It's from Casablanca. I waited my whole life to say it. He announces that you know he's been waiting his whole life to <laughs> to deliver that speech, and it's, it's it says a lot. I mean, it was meant, of course, for you know it's in a comedic vein, but I think it's it's more than just that. It really does betray, I think, the the obsession that that, that not just Woody Allen, when writing this play in the final years of the of the nineteen sixties, found himself facing, but but also others, uh, you know, of his generation. And again, these, 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 these legions of students at, at Harvard Radcliffe, but then also there was a study that was done in the 1970s of students up in Palo Alto at Stanford and all these interviews that were conducted. And, and there, too, there were, you know, it, it definitely had attained cult status. And I don't even think it was only at these limited to these elite institutions. I mean, I just think that in film societies across the country, Lou Luminick, for instance, who recently retired from the New York Post as the film critic there, he was one of the dozens of, of people I had the pleasure of interviewing. And he mentioned that when he was a student at CUNY, that that was, that was one of, you know, sort of a centerpiece of, of the work that he had done in the film society there. And Jim Hoberman, who for many years was the uh, lead critic at the Village Voice and now writes a column for the Times, he told me how his mother, when she was at Brooklyn College, she watched it. So soon after, it was still in, in general release, so soon after it was released in around 1943, so during the war, when they got to that very, very famous Marseillaise scene, mm-hmm. everybody in the theater, this is in one of the big picture palaces in Flatbush, the Flatbush section of, of Brooklyn, everybody stood up and sang the Marseillaise with it. So, I mean, just in terms of, again, the, the, the level of, of identification, the level of, of engagement, that's pretty extraordinary. And I sometimes joke about it, you know, sort of anticipating uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's usually my, my, my reference. I would say almost uh, this, this hasn't quite happened the same, but people quote lines from The Big Lebowski, I think, with a, with a similar sense of, of uh, cult, kind of cultish quality to it. But this is a film, I think, again, because of the, 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 these quotable lines, because of the, just the brilliant, brilliant script that, that uh, the Epstein twins, along with Howard Koch, uh, and with some input from Casey Robinson, a few other contract writers at Warner's, it's that, you know, this is the script also that is just taught so, so widely. It was taught by Sid Field when he was still alive, and it, and, it, and it's also taught today in the uh, the McKay screenwriting seminars that are taught not only in the U.S., but a, a, abroad, and he always ends his, his screenwriting with a four-hour spiel on Casablanca. And one of the reasons for it is that just it, 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 it is such a, an evocative and poignant screenplay and I think a really great object lesson in how a screenplay can work when done, you know, the way that these, these, these amazingly talented screenwriters managed to do in 1942. We've been talking mostly about its legacy in the United States, mm-hmm. but it traveled overseas quite well. We just showed Breathless Mm -hmm. here in San Diego, and the Jean-Paul Belmondo character is looking at pictures of Bogart and doing the little, yeah, the thumb over the lip. So it it has international appeal. Yeah, that scene in Breathless when Belmondo's standing in front of the, uh, he's at a, 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 you know, picture palace Mm -hmm. cinema in Paris, and it's The Harder They Fall, 
that's the, the poster that he's looking at, and he does the, he does his best to do that kind of bogey. First. He too is very much a part of that 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 bogey cult that took root not only on these shores, but definitely in France. The reception in France was really quite uh, ardent. There were those who thought that it wasn't the most accurate reflection, of course, of history. But then, you know, it it was played over and over again at these repertory houses, in particular in the the Latin Quarter. And in you know Italy, I mentioned Umberto Eco and the very famous piece that he wrote. He was not only a great novelist and, and, and critic, but he was also a leading semiotician, as they called it. You know, the sort of the, the study of signs. And he was working with a team of researchers at the University of Bologna when he wrote that piece. And I believe again it was around the early '80s, if I'm not mistaken. But there too, major major uh, re- uh, reception among Italians in uh, Germany and Austria, even though it was censored during the Adenauer period, right after the war, because they didn't want to rock the boat, so to speak. So not, you know, they, about 24, 25 minutes of, of film were lopped off because you couldn't have these reference to Nazis. They were in the period of what they called, ironically enough, denazification. And so when they showed it up until the 70s, it was, it was in a highly truncated, censored version, dubbed, and then by the 1970s, when you had the kind of same sort of cinephilia that had already taken root in France around the Cahiers, the cinema crowd, and so forth, in um, Germany and Austria began to be shown in, in the original. And people were just smitten with it. And I interview a number of, of critics and film historians, film preservationists, who, who speak to me about that. Um, and then in Sweden, too, where you would think it would have taken off very, very quickly and early because of Bergman, among other reasons. But it was only really quite, quite late that, that, uh, that it, if, if, if we can even speak of it as, as having attained cult status, it was in the past decade or so. And just recently, there's a wonderful um, documentary on Ingrid Bergman called Ingrid Bergman in Her Own uh, words by a Swedish uh, filmmaker named Stig uh, Björkman. And when that premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2015, I interviewed uh, a, uh, a Swedish film critic named Morten Blomqvist, and we spoke uh, about the significance of that documentary. And he says that that's really what, what again, just seeing the, the documentary on Bergman, it drew people back to the to the the film. What he also commented on, which is so uh, important, I think, was the in terms of the larger context at that very moment. Is Sweden, next to Germany, was the nation in in Europe that uh, took in the most refugees. And when watching the movie in 2015, he was interviewed for Swedish radio. Morten Blomqvist, the Swedish film critic, said suddenly he realized it's really it's a refugee film. And he'd watched it over the years, but it was only in that summer when he was at Cannes, so in 2015. That suddenly he realized that and he, it's it's very very nice. He he reviewed the book uh, just just last week in Dagens Nyheter, which is one of the two leading Swedish daily newspapers, and he spoke specifically about that aspect, about the refugee story. I was so so heartened to note the book had also been reviewed in this. As we, I lived as a teenager in Sweden, and it, it meant a great deal to me that it was being received. And that again is just in, just in terms of your question, Beth. It's it's it, yeah. The very fact that it's being covered in Sweden shows that people are people are still interested, I think, in this film. Now, it takes a long time to put a book together, but when you started the book, you weren't probably aware of what kind of politics would be going on right now in terms of refugees. So has it surprised you how contemporary some of those themes have suddenly come yeah. to be? 
Yeah, you know, when I said earlier on about this strange bridge between the Omer biography and this book, and that that bridge is really about those 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 refugees, exiles, emigres who landed in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s under the Hitler regime, and under fascism in Europe, more generally speaking, I knew that that was going to play a big part in the book, and it does. It's that it's that four, there are seven chapters. The fourth is the central chapter. What I didn't realize, of course is that when the book would be published, that, that we'd be in the, the kind of, and I don't know who could have anticipated this. And what is both, I think, heartening as well as haunting for me is how much the story now, you know, resonates with the current, with the current kind of political regime. And, and, and I guess along similar lines, the reviews that I've been just incredibly uh, happy with the the book's reception so far, and the different you know people who've, who've, who've responded to it and what they've chosen to write on, but m- almost almost all of them, if they don't make it the the sort of the central theme of their review, it's definitely you know next next in line. But so many of them have 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 looked at the film sort of refracted through the lens of this current political moment and the refugee crisis that we're facing once more and, and you know, the seven nation or what now, I guess, the six nation ban and and so forth. And so um, I, of course, never could have imagined that that would be the uh, world into which the book would be, you know, sort of thrown or cast. But that's that's what we're currently facing. And it's, it's um, I mean, it's it's, I guess... I don't know. I mean, I, I, we, we, I'm not sure how to respond to it because on the one hand, I feel almost it's sort of tinged with, with, with uh, guilt, perhaps misplaced guilt, I don't know, but guilt that the book that I wrote is now suddenly speaking to so many people in a moment that, oh, I so, so very much wish never would have, we'd never, never be busy. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange position to be in that, 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 that the book, on the one hand, I should, I should be grateful and thrilled that so many people want to talk about it and are writing about it because of this, you know, the, the sort of the link to what we're all facing at this present moment. On the other hand, it's just such a depressing and, and these are very dark times that we're living through. And I think, again, that's a, a an unintended affinity with with you know the times that these these people who are depicted on screen in a Hollywood film not only had many of them had lived through many of the actors had gone through and experienced what what's what's portrayed on screen but also behind the camera Michael Curtiz had family that was stranded in in Europe and several of whom perished in the camps uh, as did S.C. Sakal who plays Carl the waiter cuddles as he was known on on these shores and and and, and several others and so you know, it's a Hollywood movie, and it's a fiction, and yet, strangely, it has a very, very firm anchor in the history that was unfolding at that moment. Well, and also you have the character of Rick, who's this kind of American expatriate, but he represents a very kind of American attitude, and his attitude is very embracing Mm. of all these different people because his cafe is kind of this refuge, this place where everybody can, of whatever background they are, can kind of escape to safely or be there safely. Yeah, in the Warners, uh, in their uh, press kit that they did, the publicity materials they prepared for the film, one of the things that they they noted was that, uh, so it was on stage seven, stage eight, but they said the stage eight, I think it was the specific specific uh, place. They, they called it International House because people who were from some 35 different nationalities and all these different languages that were spoken on set. And in fact, German, it's really, you know, 
again, the strange link to the to the Ulmer biography. But German was the the lingua franca. That's what even these you know Hungarian born, whether it was Curtiz or Peter Lorre or S. C. Sakal, who plays Carl, the waiter, that German was 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 the the language they used. And yes, Rick is that he is the American who who, and also at a time look his his his. His chum, his best best friend, is 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 the African American Dooley Wilson, Sam. Boss, let's get out of here. No, sir. I'm waiting for a lady. Please, boss, let's go. Ain't nothing but trouble for you here. Coming back, I know she's coming back. We'll take the car and drive all night. We'll get drunk. We'll go fishing and stay away until she's gone. Get up and go home, will you? No, sir. I'm staying right here. He drinks with him, he travels with him, and sure, Sam looks at him and calls him boss and sir and so forth. But that, you know, that scene when, when, when uh, in the in the flashback when Ilza and Rick and Sam toast to one another and drink champagne together, there's a review in the one of the few black-owned newspapers in New York City, uh, the Amsterdam News, that reviewed it, and the critic said this is one of the greatest roles that an African-American actor has ever played. And I learned later that when they would, when they would screen the film in Harlem in 1943, when it was still in, in general release, they would screen it through and then they would play the different scenes with Dooley Wilson because it was such an enormous advance that there he was, he was a full-blown character. And Rick, you know, that too. Not only does he have his dear, dear friends who were all foreigners in, in, in Rick's cafe, but his, his best friend is, is this African-American musician. And so... The film could get away with that, especially since it's set in North Africa. But this was a time when, especially in 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 the the Jim Crow South, there were certain films that couldn't be shown, or they would edit out uh, scenes because this was not a moment of of integration. In addition to that, Rick too. I mean, he does the right thing. He begins as this, you know, with all those professions of being an isolationist. I stick my neck out for nobody. But, of course, that's precisely what he does. I mean, whether he's helping the Bulgarian couple and, and Helmut Dantina, the Austrian-born actor who's, who plays uh, Jan Brandl, whether he's helping her, uh, him, uh, you know, giving him a little advice that number 22 might not be a bad, <laughs> a bad, a bad spot to put all of his chips, or whether he's helping, ultimately, uh, Victor Laszlo and, and, and making sure that Ilza gets on that plane with him. Uh, Laszlo's great, 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 great lines, uh, welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. Well, that's, that's, that's the conversion. I mean, that's the great political conversion of this. And Rick is a wonderful American archetype. I mean, I wish you could have more Rick today, but yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw the film and, and what kind of an impact it had on you? Yeah, it's funny. My, I think it was when I was living in Sweden, but it's unclear. I was in my teenage years and, 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 uh, and my mother was huge, still is, she'll be here tonight, and she is a huge fan of the film. And initially, I was resistant. I thought that this is something that, you know, that uh, middle-aged women loved, or that, and it was a very kind of pig-headed, teenage, rebellious response, how wrong I was, of course. And then it was really later when I was in college, and specifically in graduate school, um, when I was up at Berkeley, I watched it and found myself suddenly kind of, you know, almost yeah, smitten with it. I mean, just to say that, wow, what, is, what have I missed? And I think that there, too, that was the beginning of this deeper immersion in the study of all of those uh, European refugees and, and uh, exiles, immigrants who, who were in Hollywood. And I think that there's a wonderful, very, very chatty, anecdotal history of Hollywood in the 1940s called City of Nets by Otto Friedrich. It's a lot of great, great anecdotes in there. And I was reading that around that time, too. That and, and Anthony Halbert's Exiled in Paradise 
um, which was another wonderful study of, of, of that period, specifically that niche. And, and that's, I think, around the time that I really learned to, to appreciate the film and saw it in an entirely new light. But no, initially, I mean, that's a sort of strange, strange and, and funny, funny irony of the, of the book is that initially my response to it, I think, was really at best lukewarm, if not just plain cold. This is a film that's been around for a long time and has been written about and talked about a lot. When you were putting the book together, did you find anything that really surprised you or that was something you hadn't heard about? So there were a couple of, you know, it's not, there's a fair amount of primary research in this book, but as you said, and as I said moments ago when I was praising the wonderful Algene Harmets and her, uh, you know, round up the usual suspects from 1992, her production history, she left very, very few stones unturned. The part that, that, that I do bring to this for sure is, you know, because of my ability, my linguistic facility, my ability to read primary uh, uh, materials in, in German and then to some extent in Swedish and some, some of the others, I was reading some in French as well, but in particular the, the German, that, that, that is certainly new. And so the, the, there are two major, major discoveries that I thought, and they, they're, otherwise they're pretty small, but they're major in the sense that first I mentioned the Amsterdam News, the, 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 the nobody had ever talked about this this you know the the reception of the film in the in the the then called black black press so that was entirely new and i was so happy to be i did some research up in harlem at the schomburg center and, and dug up a few things there and the elliot carpenter papers as well elliot carpenter is the guy he was a studio musician he would played with dooley wilson already in the 20s in a band called the jazz band called the red devils but he was the guy who's playing off screen dooley wilson didn't know how to play piano so it's elliot carpenter who's playing off screen so I looked at his papers and also at the Amsterdam Press, got that. Then also working at the Leo Beck Institute in the Center for Jewish History in, in, in Manhattan, nobody had really looked at the at the reception in the in the in the emigre press. And there was German language called the Aufbau, the Reconstruction was is what the direct translation of the title of that uh, newspaper was, but it was German-Jewish newspaper. And the review there was uh, is also incredibly, incredibly revealing uh, insofar as it too talks about the experience that they had actually gone through and that this film, miraculously enough, undertook to portray on screen. And they were very, very, I think, proud of that, just as the Amsterdam News, that you know, Harlem-based black-owned newspaper, was very, very proud of, of the performance by Julie Wilson. There are a few other things, too, that, I was, that, 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 that were, for me, at least, new discoveries, but those are the two I always single out, I think, because they were... I just think so so very uh, revealing and very illuminating when trying to, to, to look at the film from both of those different angles. So from the angle of, of Dooley Wilson and, and, you know, what this film might mean. He's not a Pullman porter. He's not a domestic. He's not a, you know, a servant. And, and, and to see this, this kind of, of character, because I've always been drawn to him anyway, but I think to look at it in the context in which the film was made... Today, you know, people may look at it and kind of scoff at, oh, he's always saying sir and boss and so forth. But, but this was huge. This, these were major strides. And they, I can say that because it's not just me who's saying it, but the Amsterdam News was saying it. And, and, and readers, uh, you know, African-American readers at that time were saying that. And then also with Aufbau to see the way that the, the German-Jewish emigrant community was, was responding to the film was, for me, uh, extremely important. Uh, and I think sheds quite a bit of light on, on that facet of the book. You mentioned the writers being people who work within the Hollywood system and were kind of cranking out films mm. uh, that were given to them. And what does it say about the fact that this is such a product of kind of the Hollywood system, which was this kind of assembly line, but it's a film that really does strike so many chords. And 
do you think it's the fact that it was a product of this that has helped it? Or is it a fluke of this system? I mean, how do you, you see that? Because, you know, a lot of times we talk about the Hollywood studio system as in a semi-derogatory way, as like an assembly line. It's not like people had the creative freedom that they would get later when the studio system mm -hmm. broke down. But how do you see that kind of playing a role in the, in the film? Yeah, I think it was the French critic André Bazin who first spoke of the genius of the system. And I think that there is something to that in this film, for sure. I mean, it was Andrew Saris who also spoke of it as the happiest of happy accidents. And this is the, you know, the greatest exception to the auteur theory because he didn't uh, hold uh, Michael Curtiz, the director, in such high regard compared to the other auteurs, uh, auteur directors he was really, you know, was much more drawn to. So there definitely is that. But then there's also, and this is something that Ingrid Bergman said late in life, because, you know, when she kept, people always wanted to ask her about Casablanca when she would travel the globe and, you know, do, do sort of uh, uh, Q&As with audiences and so forth. She said that there's something almost mystical about this film. And I think when we were talking earlier about how at the time during its making, that she and Bogart and others were really skeptical about it. And same was true with the Epsteins, too. They said, you know, we, we weren't making art. We were making, you know, a living. And yet there's something it's, I, we, it's hard to put your finger on. What is it? What is it about it that, 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 that had it transcend just that sort of assembly line product that was being churned out in Hollywood during the studio era? And I don't know what that is. There is something almost mystical. She said. It, 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 she says in, in the quote, and I begin with this, the epigraph of the book, is it, it filled a need, a certain need that was there before the film. Um, and I think there is, there's, there's a lot to that. And so, but it's a mix. I mean, I think it is. Yes, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't disagree at all with what, 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 uh, what Andrew Sarris said about this happiest of happy accidents, because I think there was something that was, you know, the great timing. Um, the ability to 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 uh, take advantage of this enormous pool of of highly highly ta uh, uh, highly talented and, and well trained actors who were there and filling all these bit parts. There's just a massive supporting cast in that film. is is yeah. really really impressive. <laughs> and then you know Hal Wallace, who at the time was trying to you know, achieve a certain degree of independence at Warner's. He was doing these independent productions. He had done, you know, see these signature productions. He had done Na Voyager the previous year with this film too. It's a Hal B. Wallace production. And I think he had a great deal invested in this film. I mean, it doesn't, didn't have, command the highest of budgets, but I think he wanted to make sure that this was going to be a film that he would be proud of. And so you have that as well. And Curtiz for, you know, even if he is the, whatever, the greatest uh, exception of the auteur uh, theory, according to Sarah's, he was so, so very talented and also incredibly, incredibly efficient. And that, you know, look, efficiency was the name of the game in, 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 in sort of the, the studio production uh, of that time. And he was incredibly, incredibly efficient. And he was, look, it, a lot of it was his credit. When, when, so, so, so Bergman may have been very distraught during the making of this film because she didn't know whether she should be in love with, uh, with, with Rick or with Victor. But Curtis's response to that don't worry, play it in between, play it in between, he would say, and, and brilliant, I mean, having her play it in between, she, she really, that, 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 that kind of very tense and, and uncertain, uh, you know, the, the, all the, the sort of bundle of, 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 uh, of nerves that, 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 that she, and you see it when, when you're, you're cheeks start to tremble a bit that's it, it's terrific and he kind of coaxes that out of and I think he coaxes an incredible mean, Bogart he said famously later he didn't do anything differently in this picture uh, than he'd done in all the others he just had Ingrid Bergen who looked Ingrid Bergman who looked at him with that sort of amorous gaze and suddenly he was a boom he was a romantic lead 
there's something to that, but also he gives this incredible performance. The, just the, 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 the very response, and you can perhaps think, remember this, 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 this great scene, when he enters after, after uh, Ilza convinces, after Bergman convinces Sam to play as time goes by, and he storms in. As time goes by. Sam, I thought I told you never to play. And he looks at her. He too. I mean, his 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 cheeks are are trembling there as well. And it's just so there's this kind of the, the these sort of unspoken gestures are really really important in this film. And I think there are also a lot of unspoken gestures among the supporting players, these day players too. A lot of glances in the film, almost a throwback to the silent silent pictures. There's another great scene when 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 you see Bogart's cheeks tremble, and that's when 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 Joy Page, one of the three American-born uh, actors who are among the credited, the 15 or so credited actors in the film. Joy Page was Jack Warner's stepdaughter, so nothing like a little Hollywood nepotism. But when she comes as Anina Brandl and asks him what, 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 you know, for advice, what would you do? We come from Bulgaria. Well, things are very bad there, monsieur. The devil has the people by the throat. So Jan and I, we, we did not want our children to grow up in such a country. And so you decided to go to America. Yes, but we have not much money, and traveling is so expensive and difficult. It was much more than we thought to get here. And then Captain Renault sees us, and he is so kind. He wants to help us. Yes, I'll bet. He tells me he can give us an exit visa, but, but we have no money. Does he know that? Oh, yes. And he's still willing to give you a visa? Yes, monsieur. And you want to know? Will he keep his word? He always has. Oh. Monsieur, you are a man. If someone loved you very much, so that your happiness was the only thing that she wanted in the world. But she did a bad thing to make certain of it. Could you forgive her? Nobody ever loved me that much. And he never knew. And the girl kept this bad thing locked in her heart. That would be all right, wouldn't it? You know, in Rick's response, I, n nobody's ever loved me that much. No woman has ever loved me that much. His two, his che cheeks are trembling, and you can just there's an intensity that I think is 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 really quite extraordinary. And I think that Curtis was also part, at least partly responsible for for coaxing out of his his actors this 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 wonderful performances. We're talking a little bit about how the film has kind of a political resonance today. But for people, when the film came out in the early '40s. Mm. What, how is it received? Because Hollywood's not known for making wildly controversial or political films. So was it taken as having a political message or having a political subtext? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was. And in fact, that was one of the things that, 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 that all of the critics, regardless of the, there were a few dissenting voices. I mean, since we're in San Diego, maybe I should mention that Manny Farber was one of the, those few. To, this is when he was writing for the New Republic, and he, he ran a piece that was called The Warner Boys in Africa, I think was the title. And he felt that it was really Hollywood hokum. He thought that it was, you know, one of the great epic phonies, as he called it, almost anticipating Holden Caulfield there, uh, the great epic phonies of Hollywood. But he made a point of mentioning the particular, and this is something that he did, that James Agee, who was another dissenting voice, Pauline Kael, who thought of it as schlocky romanticism, as she put it, those are her words. One of the things that all of them, I think, could agree upon is the powerful Marseillaise scene and the significance of that political gesture, specifically in that scene. 
Other critics, and they were the real chorus of very, very positive voices, whether it was Bosley Crowther at the, at the New York Times or whether it was a whole slew of, of, of other critics writing for the industry trades as well as for the dailies, they were enormously, I think, taken with this film. And one of the reasons they were taken with it, I think, was because of its political message. And look, Warner Brothers took heat for this. Uh, in September of 1941, Harry Warner, the president of the studio, had to go before Congress and testify before the very, very active and vocal isolationist faction in Congress. They were accused of warmongering. They were, you know, they were accused of, of really beating those, 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 those drums of war in, in films like Well, Confessions of a Nazi Spy from 1939, even the Paul Muni, the uh, Emil Zola mm-hmm. biopic, The Life of Emil Zola, that too was, was thought of as being, uh, they, were, they, were, they were called premature anti-fascists. That, that was the real accusation. And so they, they took heat over it, but this is a film where it really, really paid off. And one last question is, do you have a favorite line or scene from the film? Oh, God, That's a, that is, a, that is a, a good question. The one, I mean, you, you probably won't be surprised to hear this from me, but the, the, the one scene that I just so, so love, and it, and, and it maybe also will come not so much as a surprise to you, that this is, this is Reiner Werner Fassbinder's favorite scene in the movie as well, is the scene of, of Herr and Frau Leuchtag, the, the elderly couple, as they're preparing their in, preparing for their journey to America, and when Carl sits down and drinks a, a cognac with them, brandy with them. The truth glass. At last, the days came. Well, Leuchtag and I are speaking nothing but English now. So we should feel at home when we get to America. A very nice idea. <laughs> to America. <laughs> to America. <laughs> to America. Liebchen, sweetness out. What watch? Ten watts. Such much? You will get along beautifully in America. <laughs> and of course, I love that. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Beth. That was Noah Eisenberg, author of We'll Always Have Casablanca, the life, legend, and afterlife of Hollywood's most beloved movie. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I hope this has inspired you to go watch Casablanca again, or for the first time. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.